Somebody tell me what book we're going through. All right, good. That's right. If you're a guest, you heard that correctly. We are walking through the book of Leviticus, and it has been a joy um, to encounter, as Justin said, the king through his word through this particular book. Uh, We're going to read in chapter 6 this morning, just six verses, verses 8 through 13. Uh, Leviticus chapter 6. I think we're moving at a pretty good pace, if you ask me, but I may not be the best judge of how quickly one goes through a book, um, and I admit that. Uh, But we're going to read God's Word together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig right in. Leviticus 6, starting in verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers, and he shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place." And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, we... We do thank you that you are in our presence this morning, that your grace is at work, your spirit is applying all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Lord, we ask that you would grant us the grace to understand your word, that it might do its work in us, that by your spirit impressing it upon our hearts, we would be convicted of sin where necessary that we would be encouraged where encouragement is lacking, that we would be sanctified through and through, that our lives might burn with a desire to see you honored and glorified in all things. We thank you for your word, and we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right. I'm, unfortunately, Bob, I don't have a... Um, a football story to start with. Uh, it's going to be kind of the opposite. We're going to have to start with a quick review this morning, and here's here's why. Um, we're turning. We're at a turning point uh, at this juncture in Leviticus. Uh, up to this point, if you remember, the Lord has been speaking through Moses, addressing the people of Israel as a whole, instructing Israel on how they are to bring offerings to Him, how they're to worship. Him, how they are to atone for their sins. And so, as we've been looking at chapters 1 through 5 and the first part of chapter 6, we've come to understand a couple of these offerings and what they represent. We come to understand the, the burnt offering as a sacrifice for atonement and a symbol of whole life devotion to the Lord. We saw the grain offering in chapter 2 was a sacrifice of thanksgiving and a symbol of whole life submission to the Lord. We saw that the peace offering was a covenant ratification ceremony celebrating peace with the Lord. Then we saw the sin, or as we called it, the purification offering, 
which offered a picture of cleansing that which sin made dirty, the holy palace tent of the Lord in particular. And finally, we looked at last week the guilt or reparation offering as a commercial picture of sin causing a debt that must be paid. Now here in chapter 6, beginning in verse 8 and onward, we are now going to revisit all of those offerings from the perspective of the priest. You excited about that? I hope so. And and really, if you've been reading along, you you might have asked yourself, how in the world are we going to look at all these things again? I just want to point out that the Lord is actually saying something different here as he instructs the priest in these various offerings. He's going to put out what they need to understand and, and, and they go about doing the very special work they've been called to do. He's going to make sure they remember their calling. And there will be, I promise, there will be much to be gained for us from this very thing. So here's the big idea of today's passage from verses 8 through 13. It is this. The posture of the redeemed is one of perpetual or continuous dependence and worship before the Lord. That's a big one, I know. Wordy. But let's read it again and make sure we understand it. The posture of the redeemed is one of perpetual or continuous dependence and worship before the Lord. That's the picture. Now, in order for us to really see this, I want us to look specifically at the passage itself. And then from that passage, after that, we're going to take away a few lessons. First, that the priest specifically, or Israel, would have learned. And then lessons for us that we need to learn. So, in the first section here, all I want to do is expound the text Itself. Let's walk through these six verses or so and see what the Lord says. I want to make sure we all understand exactly what's taking place here. The passage begins, remember this from our introduction, the passage begins, then the Lord spoke to Moses. That is and will be a repeated refrain throughout the book. We've talked about how how this is to remind us that this is actually part of a, a narrative. It's actually part of a story. This is Moses standing before the Lord. The Lord is speaking to him in person directly. Remember, the Lord has just descended into the camp of Israel and has ascended his throne. And he's now issuing instruction on how the people of Israel might come before him and enjoy fellowship with him. And so we hear this over and over and over again. The Lord spoke to Moses. And up until now, as we said, the Lord has spoken to Moses with instruction for the people of Israel. And now, as I mentioned in the command, he says... Command Aaron and his sons. That is the priest. That is the tribe of Levi. And what does the Lord tell them to do? Well, the Lord instructs him in verses 8 through 13 about the burnt offering. This is how the priests are supposed to go about their responsibility of offering burnt offerings. Now, remember, chapter 1 instructed all the people of what they're to do about the burnt offerings. It told them which animal to bring how to perform that sacrifice very specifically. But here in chapter 6, the focus is a little bit different. This is what the priests start to do. They are to offer a burnt offering on behalf of all of Israel every evening. And this is key. It is to burn all night long. 
So therefore, their responsibility mainly is to make sure that the fire does not go out. That's important. We saw it three times when we read. Did you catch on to it? In the morning, after the fire had been burning all night long, the burnt offering offered in the evening at this point had been made into ashes. And and the priest who is responsible for cleaning the altar in preparation of another very full and long day of Israelite sacrifices, he is to first change into his holy clothes, including, yes, his holy underwear. He dresses in his holy garb and then he goes to the altar. He removes the ashes from the altar and places them next to the altar. By the way, pastor props for not making a joke about holy underwear right there, right? Probably just gave them away by mentioning that I didn't make a joke about holy underwear. But nevertheless, progress is progress. Okay. There's a distinction being made here and that's part of the point. The the priest is to cover himself with holy clothing in order to approach the altar. And he's to take that very, very seriously to recognize there's a difference between the holy and the clean, nevertheless the holy and the unclean. So a distinction is being made while he dresses and performs his sacrifices. Meanwhile, make sure, priests, that the fire does not go out. Again, it must remain burning. After the ashes have been removed, you are to offer a burnt offering to initiate and begin another day of worship. And so a morning burnt offering is then offered on the altar. Place the burnt offering and the fat from a peace offering on the altar. And whatever you do, yeah, I'm going to say it again. Make sure the fire doesn't go out. So that's the text itself. That's what six verses tell us, okay? responsibility of distinction being made between the holy clothing, make sure the fire goes out, make sure the fire goes out, and make sure the fire doesn't go out, like over and over and over again. Make sure that this doesn't happen. So what are the lessons there for the priest? There are many lessons we could pull from this, but I think one of the obvious ones is this. The work of the priest was unceasing. It was. The work of the priest was unceasing. 24-7 the fire was to be kept burning. There were no holidays here. In fact, holidays would have actually meant more burnt offerings in the case of the priest. There were no days where the tabernacle was closed for business. Night and day, it was attached to the priest to ensure that the fire remained burning. Why is that? Well, this is because... The fire is actually symbolic of the Lord's very presence. The fire represents something here. It represents, first and foremost, I believe, the Lord's very presence. And this is just a theme I want to point out. You you remember how the Lord first appeared to Moses, don't you? It was a burning bush. A fire that did not consume the bush. He spoke to him out of the fire. Later, when the Lord redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt, he appeared to them in a pillar of cloud and of fire. Mount Sinai, the Lord descended upon the mountain in fire before meeting with Moses. And after the holy palace tent is erected in the very last chapter of Exodus, we find that the Lord's glory descends upon the tabernacle. And you have again the pillar of the cloud and fire. After all, it's important to think about this. Remember, these were instructions that were given before any of this actually took place. But but do you know where the fire from the altar itself would actually come from? 
It would come from the Lord himself. The very fire that burned on the altar was fire from heaven. It was the Lord's fire. In fact, uh, think with me on Leviticus chapter 9 verse 24. It says this, it should be on the screen. It says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So up until this point, the altar had not been lit. We'll get there, but, but the altar is just sitting there. It's prepared. Aaron and his sons will come before the altar, and eventually they're going to offer the very first sacrifices. And guess what? They don't pull out a box of matches. The Lord creates the fire. The Lord places the fire on the altar as a symbol of His presence. In fact, this very same thing would happen even later after Solomon built the temple when they actually possessed the promised land and he creates that altar there. Guess what happens? The Lord once again lights the fire. It is never man-made fire. And that fire would continue to burn throughout the 40-year journey to the promised land. It represented the Lord's very presence. The offerings were given on the altar, and as long as the fire was kept burning, the Lord received which was offered. So the fire not only symbolized the Lord's presence, but it did something else. The fire also reminded the people that this was a holy God. The fire reminded the people that this was a holy God, that God was morally pure. Fire often is used in scripture of a picture of that which either judges sin or purifies that which is consecrated to the Lord. He would not wink at sin. He would not ignore injustice. The fire and the altar served as a reminder that he would not share his glory with another. So we read in Deuteronomy 4.24, a verse we probably know very well, right? For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The God of the Israelites is a holy God who would not tolerate sin of any kind. He is indeed a consuming fire. There's something else the fire reminds us. The fire not only reminds us of the Lord's very presence and symbolic of that, it also reminds us that He was a holy God, but the fire also reminded the people of Israel that they themselves were to be holy. (laughs) That they were to be holy themselves. We'll get there in Leviticus and see that they were to be holy because the Lord is holy. They were set apart For the Lord. The fire was a continual reminder of their ongoing consecration to the Lord. Listen, it was the animals that were consumed in the fire, right? But it was the Israelites that were consecrated to the Lord through the sacrifices. The fire both represented the fire of judgment that consumed that which was offered and the fire of refinement which purified those who offered it. The Israelites were continually being consecrated by the perpetual burnt offering. Morning and evening, the burnt offering always being placed on the altar with permanent fire that was never to go out. So the priest's work, it was certainly unceasing. But I also want us to notice, the priest's work was not only continual or unceasing, it was essential. (laughs) It was essential, and here's why. Pay attention to this. It was essential because it was intercessory. 
the priests served the Lord on behalf of all of Israel. They were intercessors that stood before the Lord, offering up these offerings on behalf of all whom they represented. You see, keeping the fire burning was an important part of their intercession. The intercession of the priests was largely through sacrifices. And so, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he was interceding on behalf of all of Israel. And if the fire went out, no sacrifices and no intercession. The infection of sin would therefore spread and their debt would increase. Listen, just just from a very practical standpoint, if the fire goes out, the sacrificial system that was given to Israel to atone for their sins, to purify them of the unholy dust that settled on the camp and to pay the debt caused by their sin would go on unaddressed. And so our passage is adamant, do not let the fire go out because this is fire that belonged to the Lord. The Lord created the sacrificial system. He prescribed the sacrificial method and he provides the sacrifices themselves and the Lord must receive the sacrifices. Here's why this is important, friends, because I think that you and I have a tendency to erect our own altars, even in our worship. I think that we have a tendency to build our own fires. To think that the Lord would be pleased with our innovation or with our creativity. It's particularly in worship. Listen, this happens in pastoral circles all the time. We need a refresh or a recharge of new methods to reach the people in worship. As if the Lord needs our innovation and creativity to do what He's been doing for all of this time. He doesn't. I surely you simply listen, the Lord prescribes very clearly and sufficiently how we are to worship Him. Did you know that? And and really the problem gets out. We flat out don't want to worship Him the way He's prescribed, so we think we need something new. No. We need to humble ourselves and sit under the authority of the Word of God because it is indeed enough. Enough for our worship, enough for our devotion, enough to offer our lives as a living sacrifice the way God Himself has prescribed. So for the ancient Israelites, the implications were clear. No man made fire. If the fire went out, it would stay out unless or until the Lord Reignited it. But the priest work was not only continuous, it was not only essential, but get this big word, ready? It was typological. If you went to our Old Testament survey class on our Grow class on Wednesday nights, you probably are relatively familiar with that word typological or type. That is this it, it, it simply means that the, the priest work pointed towards something other than itself, it foreshadowed something greater. Remember what a type is. A type is a person, place, event, or thing that is meant to point beyond itself. Something that is typological is something that's meant as a, as a guidepost, meant to reveal about something greater to come. So what did it represent? The fire and all that it represented was meant to create an expectation of a sustainable form of worship. The fire itself 
served to create a greater expectation of a fire that would not require continuous tending. Or or said another way, the presence of the Lord would not be at constant risk of being lost. That's what this altar and the fire, this, they created that expectation. An expectation of a way to worship the only true and living God that was not at constant risk of being shut down. That is a sustainable form of worship. An expectation of a refining fire that would once and for all purify us from our sin. A fire that would deal with the internal problem of sin, which is the heart. Now, hear me. That expectation was simply in embryo form as we find it here in the passage. But it's nonetheless here. But future Israelite history would only serve to amplify this expectation, this desire, this longing for a permanent solution to their sin problem that one day would not be at risk of being broken. So, as we look at Israelite history, we see the struggles with sin and the apostasy through various stages of Israelite history, culminating eventually in the sack of Jerusalem and the defilement of the very temple that would create in Israel an overwhelming expectation for something greater than this. But but not only the fire, but the priests themselves were meant to point to something or someone beyond themselves. More to the point... The intercessory work of the priest served as another type. As the priests labored before the Lord to, to keep the fire going, they were serving as types and shadows of a better priest who was yet to come. The priests were to ensure that there was always a sacrifice on the altar, and they worked unceasingly to intercede on behalf of Israel. But that intercessory work in the fire, it required ultimately points to Christ. It ultimately does. In fact, as we studied this week, if you got the reading, I sent you some verses that probably are coming to your mind right now. Because just as fire played an important role in the revelation of the Lord to Moses and the Israelites, it also played a significant role in the revelation of God and Jesus Christ. Just think with me of how fire itself actually serves as bookends for the ministry of Jesus Christ. Before Jesus even goes public, the last and greatest prophet has to say this in Matthew chapter 3. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John the Baptist proclaimed, he's proclaiming the imminent coming of the Messiah, and he told them he would bring a baptism of the Holy Spirit And fire, like the fire on the altar, the fire that Christ would bring, will also bring judgment and refinement. Consuming his enemies in judgment and purifying all who belong to him. And then remember, after Jesus ascends his heavenly throne in glory, God once again reveals himself through fire. The Father and Jesus sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And what do we read in Acts chapter 2? Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That intercessory work in the Old Covenant certainly does point forward ultimately to Christ. But now it's time for us to look at the lessons for us. Here are some of the lessons for us today. Don't miss this. Thanks to Christ's death and resurrection, 
thanks to His redeeming, rescuing work, we are now altars, which means the fire is meant to be kept burning. I know you guys have heard me many times say that we are temples, right? I know we talked about that, but we're also altars. Our lives are the sacrifices and the fire lit by God is meant to be kept burning. Now, let me just tell you, this right here is a preacher's dream, right? Like, is it not? I mean, this right here, there are so many applications and the analogy here is just so sweet. I'm really tempted uh, just to go for about 10 to 15 minutes to talk about how we're to keep the fire burning. Kind of like the priest used to put wood on the fire. We need to make sure that we're reading our Bibles and attending church and keeping fire going. It can be very motivational and beneficial. And and we certainly are exhorted not to quench the Spirit, be constantly filled with the Spirit. We have a responsibility as a royal priesthood to tend the fire that Christ has lit in us. I mean, seriously, guys, this this is a preacher's dream. It's just a gold mine. But, But hear me now. Here's what I want to say. Here's what's beautiful about this for us. We do not tend the fire because we fear it will go out, but because we know it won't. That's why we tend it. It's not a literal fire that we now watch and keep, but it's the Spirit of God that has sealed us until the day of Christ's return. We do not tend the fire because we must keep an atoning sacrifice burning, but because the perfect and final sacrifice has already been made by Jesus Christ on a Roman cross almost 2,000 years ago. It is finished was his declaration. And now we declare to all the world that we are the temple of God. We are his altar and our lives are living sacrifices. Not sacrifices of atonement, but sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. We tend the fire because we are grateful and overwhelmed by the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, yes, we want to live a spirit-filled life, spirit-led life. We want to tend the fire. But it's not because we have to fear the presence of God leaving us, but it's because all fear has been removed. This desire to feed the fire that Christ has lit in us should become even greater when we realize the fact that you and I do not labor alone here. Just as the priests were to tend the fire night and day in order to protect the presence of God and to intercede on behalf of the people of Israel, so also the Lord Jesus Christ, even now, at this very moment, is interceding on our behalf. Even right now, as we sit here and listen to His Word being proclaimed, He is standing before the Father, interceding on our behalf. He is asking God for more grace, and He does not intercede to one who begrudgingly gives that grace, but who willingly gives far more abundantly than we might ask or think. That's outstanding. In fact, it's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Friends, Jesus far surpasses the previous intercessors, those priests in ancient Israel. Why? Because he lives forever. (laughs) Jesus far surpasses them because they would eventually pass. But Jesus, no, he lives forever. Are you thinking of Hebrews? You're in Johnny's class. I'm sure you are, right? It's easier to be a perpetual intercessor when you live forever. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, also, there were many priests 
Because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I'm sorry, we, we just got to read that one more time, right? Verse 25, we just got to read it. That's a hallelujah verse. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I could do it again. I'm not going to. I could do it all day. <laughs> He's always interceding on their behalf. The priest of ancient Israel, they, listen, they did what they could. They came, they went. Their priesthood was not permanent, neither individually nor collectively. So they were not able to save to the uttermost. The reality is, the priests themselves needed an intercessor. <laughs> The Old Covenant priest actually could be compared to a group of death row inmates interceding to the judge on the behalf of the rest of the death row inmates. That's the picture. And if you want to chase that analogy a little bit, the judge himself is the one who organizes the group of death row inmates. He tells them what to ask him, shows him how to ask, and entertains all of their intercession on behalf of the other death row inmates. But in the end, he was still just the guilty interceding for the guilty. There was a temporary arrangement until a better intercessor would come along. See, Jesus Christ went to death's row though he was innocent. So when he stands before the judge of the universe, his intercession carries with it the full force and value of his substitutionary atoning death. He intercedes faithfully, continually. I mean, guys, just, just think about this. I mean, have you ever considered that when you are in just your weakest moments, your weakest moments... Jesus Christ, the God-man, is interceding on your behalf before the throne of God. Your darkest places, even as a Christian, as a Christian, the, the worst sin that maybe you've forgiven and been repented of, Jesus Christ, at that moment, was interceding on your behalf before the throne of God. It's remarkable. That's what we read. You realize that when you are facing temptations in this life... That Christ is asking for a way of escape. I mean, don't forget what Jesus told Peter in Luke 22, right? He says, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. He interceded on behalf of Peter. Do you understand, church family, that when you fall when you find yourself at some place you shouldn't be doing something you shouldn't do, even then Christ Jesus is interceding on your behalf for that sin which he himself paid for. Listen, you're never alone. You are never alone. Your darkest trial and tribulation will call forth a more fervent intercessory prayer from the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees and understands. And so be comforted. Like, how could you not be comforted? I'm just going to... 
I'm going to end with this, um, Paul's words on this matter. Romans 8, verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Right, so, so if that's the case, if Christ Jesus is the one who died for us, who raised for us, is interceding and saying, no, 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 God the Father, not that one, he's ours. Then who is it that can condemn? Who is it that can separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? That's a rhetorical question resulting in a resounding no None of that. Why? Because Jesus Christ is interceding on our behalf. Verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. I mean, that, Paul, we get it. That pretty much covers everything. <laughs> right? Just in case he missed anything, he said, let's just go out and throw out any other created thing. Which only leaves God himself, which he is interceding on our behalf. None. One of those created things shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And friends, if that doesn't stir in your heart a desire to walk out of this building and live your life as a living sacrifice for this great and mighty king, nothing else will. I certainly pray it does. In the meantime, be encouraged to keep the fire burning. Why? Because our Lord Jesus is interceding on our behalf before the throne of God right now and the next second, the next minute, the next hour, and always and forever for those who belong to Him. Praise be to God. Would you stand as we close? Gracious Father, what a blessing it was to see you in your word this week. Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to bless your people. Father, that you might impress this truth upon their hearts. That we who are partakers of the new covenant in Christ would have been brought into right relationship with you through his sacrifice and recognize that we are indeed greatly loved. Nothing can separate us from that love as Christ Jesus stands interceding on our behalf. Therefore, Father, we can live with great confidence that though this world may hate us, though we may experience persecution, that we can indeed strive to keep the fire burning because it's you at work in us. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the work of Christ. To you be all honor, glory, and praise forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, You may be seated. I always forget that on Lord's Supper Day. Brothers and sisters, it's now time to participate in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to be reading from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 1 through 6. 
Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that He was seen by Cephas and then by the Twelve, And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Friends, as we've talked about this morning, Christ has accomplished our salvation on the cross and through his resurrection. It was Christ who lived a perfect life. It was Christ who completely was obedient to the Father and who went to the cross willingly on our behalf. On behalf of his bride, the church. Saints, we are part of that church. We are part of that people who God has called, whom Christ has died for. He invited us to his table, which is why we do this each month. We do this to remember what Christ has done and how he and he alone has accomplished our salvation. We celebrate and enjoy the meal that the Lord has prepared for us as we remember and reflect on what he has done through his life, death, and resurrection. So friends, if if you do not belong to Christ, then this meal is not for you. Please do not participate. But instead, see this as the invitation to call out to the Lord in this time and ask Him to save you. For He denies no one who puts their trust and faith in Him. Repent of your sins and believe on Him, for He is your only hope and He is willing and able this moment to save you. Those of us who belong to Christ, those whom he died for, you are welcome around this table. Please take this time to reflect on the gospel, on the sacrifice of the Lord, and partake with me at this time.